Every part of Scripture is alive. There's not a story, there's not a parable, there's not an incident of any kind that takes place in the Bible, but that it has a message to bring out. That's why the Bible is the living word. It's alive. It applies, when applied to our hearts and our situations, that Bible, the words of that Bible, with God's word to us, is activated. Therefore, this morning, I want to bring out just two simple uh, points from the, the journey through Jerusalem that Jesus made on Palm Sunday. Just two points I want to bring forward. And I want to bring them because I believe they are applicable to us right now, that God can bring us a message from that that we can take home with us. First of all, let me just uh, read that story as we find it in Luke's Gospel and in chapter 19 and verse 28. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road leads, where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God and in a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The two things I want to bring out of our message this morning is, that, is this. One of them is one of humility, and the second one is Jesus' providence has shown in his preparation. Pride is a terrible thing. I don't think people appreciate how damaging and how sinful pride is. You know, it's pride that brings about wars. It's pride that brings about the breakup of marriages. Pride in business, pride in economics, everything. Where there is pride, there is problems. Pride damages people's lives. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, perhaps we haven't noticed it so much, but Jesus had a difficulty with his disciples over this matter of pride. He had called 12 men to follow him. 
through all kinds of situations. They saw the glorious miracles he performed. They listened to his preaching, his parables. And yet, deep in their hearts, you'll find from Scripture, there was always this sense of pride. And Jesus needed to deal with it. And we, likewise, are Jesus' disciples when we know the Lord. We are the disciplined ones under Christ's leadership. But, you know, still within us, pride can creep in in almost unsuspecting ways and cause damage to our spiritual life. Pride sometimes keeps people away from becoming Christians. I well remember when I first became a Christian as a young teenager, and I was at work. I had no Christian background as such at all. And I remember that on a, I think it was a Tuesday evening, I went to a, a certain meeting, and uh, along with 18 other young people, I found myself at the front of the church kneeling and giving my life to Christ. I don't know if I've really converted at that moment, but certainly it was the first step. But what I do remember is that the next day, or sorry, the next, yes, it was the next day, they had another meeting at the church in the evening. And I thought I really ought to go along to this. Now, I was still a bit uncertain and clueless about what Christianity was about. And I remember walking down towards the church, and alongside me came a, a cycle, and it was one of my workmates. And he asked me a question. He said, he said, where are you going? And what I did, I, I said, I, I'm just going for a walk. I didn't want to tell him I was going to church. Why? Because I was ashamed. It's ridiculous, isn't it? That I was ashamed to suddenly say to him, I'm going down to church. I felt so bound up with guilt when he drew, he cycled away, left me on my own, that when I got to work the next day, I went and told all my workmates I'd become a Christian. What a relief. <laughs> the burden was lifted. You know, the Lord said, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The confession is so important to open it up and say, that's where I stand now. Something's happened in my life. And it helped me to get rid of a certain amount of pride the pride that was in me to say, you know, I'm just going for a walk. I felt so ashamed. Pride in the way. This Jesus' disciples, you know, they, they were proud. And their pride led to a certain amount of arrogance throughout their Christian walk with Christ for those three and, third, three and a half years when Jesus walked this earth. And that one occasion when they were having a dispute amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest, you find it in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 14, when Jesus suddenly produced a child who was nearby, a certain child in front of them, and he said to them, he says, except you become like one of these children, you will not even see the kingdom of God. What was he really saying to them? Uh, you know, I want you to become childish? No, of course not. What he was saying to them, you need to have a childlike faith. I've always been a great believer in child conversion. I was an evangelist for two, a couple of years, many years ago now, 
and I saw many children make a decision for Christ and people would say to me, you know, they're too young. They're too young for all this. But I remember one particular incident, and I've, I've told the story before. I conducted a mission in South Yorkshire, just outside Barnsley, and uh, church was packed that particular night for this mission. And when I made the call, altar call at the end, if people had come to know the Lord, nothing really happened, except one little girl come right from the back of the church and knelt at the front. And uh, nobody really commented on it, but when I spoke to her afterwards, I asked for her name. Obviously, she said, my name is, my name is uh, Anne Smith. And I thought, well... Smith, the thousands of names. I didn't think I'd ever take, ever remember that name. Anyway, she, she gave her heart to the Lord in a, in a simple way. I mean, I didn't know whether how, how deep it had sunk in or what. But what I do remember that some 15 or 16 years later, I was visiting a church in Derbyshire in the Peak District. I was doing a weekend there. And... Uh, at the end of the service, this young lady came to me, a very attractive young lady. She came to me and she said, do you remember me? And I looked at her and thought, no, I've got a clue. I said, no, sorry, I don't. She said, my name is Anne Smith. She said, I came to know the Lord in a meeting in Barnsley, which she told me many years ago, but I can't truthfully remember how many it was. Well, of course I didn't recognise her. <laughs> totally different, totally different. But what, what a joy. It came to me when I, I realised that this little girl, you know, she was going on strong with the Lord. In fact, she was a youth leader for that church. It was, it was wonderful. You know, the third epistle of John, I don't suppose many people read that. I saw just a one chapter, third epistle of John. And verse four, it says this, I have no greater joy than to hear, my pe hear that my children walk in truth. That's what John was saying after his evangelism. I have no greater joy. It's a joy to lead people to Christ, you know, but it's a greater joy to know they're going on with Christ. That's the wonderful thing. So Jesus produced a little child. He said, look, as you become like one of these, put away your pride. You would even see the kingdom of God. There's a story I... <laughs> I like it one way, and really I suppose I shouldn't like it. You find it in John, in Matthew chapter 20, in verse 20. When the two of the disciples, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they came up with a little scheme in their heads. Yeah, they wanted a place in the kingdom of God. Uh, not just a place, but a place of, of prominence in the kingdom of God. And so what they did, they went to their mummy to Mrs. Medbody, and they said to her, look, you just got to have a word with Jesus for us. He'll listen to you, he's compassionate, and you're a mother. Just go to have a word and ask if he can't do a little something for us. And of course, she comes to Jesus and bows down before him, and she's like, for a request, she says, just for my two sons that one may sit at your right hand and one at your left 
when you come to your kingdom. Uh, what I like about the story, it's so human. What I like the cunning that they put into it. Yeah, it, you know, and it's interesting to read in verse 24 just afterwards that the disciples were indignant at what they'd done. Why? Because they hadn't thought of it. You see, for all Jesus' teaching, for all the compassion and miracles and wonderful things he was doing, in the disciples' minds, they were secular. They were not spiritual thoughts. They still saw the kingdom of God as something secular. You know, where, where there would be positions of prominence and so forth. And they couldn't get into their heads what the kingdom of God was really like. And Jesus had a, a job all the way through his ministry to nail into them that this was something spiritual. They couldn't grasp it. Like so many other teachings that Jesus had, they couldn't grasp what he was saying. You know, the day of resurrection, which we'll be celebrating next week, you know, the disciples didn't grasp that. It was a surprise to them when it happened, and yet Jesus had spoken to them time and time again. They didn't grasp these things and let them go into them because for so much of their life, there was that pride. They were seeking a position in Christ's kingdom. There's another verse in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 23 and verse 8. It says this. This is the words of Jesus. He says, One is your master, and all you are brethren. That's how he's addressing his disciples. What is your master, even Christ, and all you are brethren? In other words, there is equality amongst you, but only one is your master, and that is Christ. Even after the Lord's Supper, as we read in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, after they'd broken bread together, the last fellowship they had together at that particular moment, immediately afterwards you find these words, there was a dispute among the disciples of who was the greatest. Between the Last Supper and the walk to the cross, there was a dispute who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. I was once sent to a church for one particular reason by Arden, the denomination I belonged to at that time. There was a a great dispute within that church and there was a great deal of unhappiness there and nobody told me exactly what it was but they sent me there for 10 days I think it was to do a, a brief mission. I soon found out when I arrived there that it was two of the leaders of the church, the two elders of the church, hated each other. Dreadful thing to say isn't it? Hated each other. I, I found this out as soon as I arrived when one spoke about the other, you know, about this man who's in this church, and the other one saying the same thing to him. And, and this was in a Christian church. They were supposed to be showing love and uh, showing the gospel to folk. In fact, when I used to go around doors knocking, on many of the, uh, on many occasions I was doing this, knocking on doors, in this particular area where I was working, the people knew what was going on in this church, the dispute. 
and more than one said to me, I wouldn't go in the place. But well, what's going on there? And I spoke to them both. I, I got them together and tried to talk to them and all the rest of it. And I thought at the end of the day, I'd won the day with them when I actually got them to shake hands. And the last service I conducted at that church before I left was a communion service. And those two were taking the bread and the wine to the congregation. They did so. I closed the service, went to the back of the church to say goodbye to people, and I had to literally, physically, tear these two together as they were fighting in the porch. Wouldn't believe it, would you? Why? Because of pride. It was pride that was causing this whole problem because both of them worked in the coal mine. But one was a manager and the other was down the pit. And there was a sense of pride and hatred between each one of them. And both of them felt the other should have preeminence within the life of that church. You couldn't think that such things were happening. And yet both of them claimed to know the Lord. But what was the problem? It was pride, 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 all the way along the way. And Jesus had to come to terms with this. In John's Gospel, in chapter 13, when we have his presentation of the Last Supper, you remember the lovely incident when Jesus took a bowl and a towel and set it before the disciples and began to wash their feet. And Peter rebuked Jesus for this. He said, no, he says, you shan't do this for me. They couldn't understand why Jesus the Master was doing the work of a servant. I mean, it was, it was a hospitality thing when people came into your home on a journey. One of the things you did was wash their feet or at least provide a bowl of water or a towel. Listen to what Jesus was doing to them. And they couldn't get to grips with this. But Jesus said to them, I have set you an example that you should do the same for one another. I have set you an example. He washed their feet, an example of humility. And that came as a shock to the disciples at that time. When we talk about revival, and we've talked much about revival in this church since uh, the last 12 months, we often quote that lovely verse we find in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, what is it? If my people, the first thing, if my people will humble themselves, then, etc., etc., but if my people, first of all, will humble themselves, then blessing me anticipated when we humble ourselves individually and collectively before Christ our God. I sometimes think, you know, that um, uh, Jesus' ministry on humility did bring an effect. But first of all, the words which Paul wrote to the Philippians, familiar words to you, in 2 Philippians, he says this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ 
if any comfort from love, with love, of if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And then he goes on to say, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and came obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him the highest place and gave him a name that is above every day. Why I say I think Jesus did get this message through to them eventually was that when we come to the days after Pentecost, we find this in Acts chapter 2, we find there how the church began to form itself after the blessing of Pentecost. Verse 42, familiar words again, they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. It makes me believe that somehow Jesus' words got through them after Pentecost, after all they experienced, and what happened to them on that day. I think eventually they found humility and humbled themselves before God. That's the blessing on that. But I did mention too about Jesus' providence and preparation. You see, the the great event of that of that that little parade in through Jerusalem was a parade that was full of humility. I don't know what the disciples at that time thought about this little parade through Jerusalem. It was a day of great joy and gladness as it took place. But I wonder what was in their minds at that particular time. Because, as I said, their minds were secular at that time. And they had ambitions, and ambitions for Christ. Were they expecting him to rise up a rebellion against the authorities? Many people believe that. That was what, in the back of their minds, that it was they were going to, Christ was going to do something to put down Rome, because really that was never going to be possible, the way things were. But whatever their expectations were, I think somehow when they suddenly saw Jesus riding on a colt through Jerusalem, I wonder what they really felt. I felt that they, perhaps their ambitions were for something far greater than that. They wanted to see him upon a fine stallion or in a chariot leading a great rebellion. But what did it come down to? Jesus riding on a colt. Why did he do this? 
It was an exhibition of humility. The whole parade was one of humility to show the disciples finally how they needed to be and what the kingdom of heaven was really about. And in this, you see the wonderful act of God's providence in preparation. Everything is prepared. You know, God is a great God of preparation. Nothing happened in the history of the Christian church or the history of Israel, but that God prepared it. He prepared the deliverance, the exodus from Egypt. God prepared a promised land to which the people would journey. And throughout the Old Testament, all the time you see God's preparation taking place. Nothing was happening by accident. It was all prepared. Every step of the way, including this journey through Jerusalem. You remember what uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to a place and I prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. I am going to prepare a place for you. Prepare it. We can have this confidence in God that as a Christian, God has got something good for you. He's got something wonderful for us, but far beyond everything we experience in this life. He has prepared a place for us. And I still like the authorised version where it says, mansions because God is preparing the best for us God the God of preparation and God prepares well my uh, daughter on her windowsill I can't remember which one it is okay I move around the house but she would have a little plaque on the windowsill and it says this we make plans God smiles we make plans but God smiles. Have you ever considered your life as a book? A Christian book? Hebrews 12.2 says, Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus. Why? Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. In a sense, you know, our lives are like a book. Every, every day, every week, every month, there's another chapter going through our life. We can look back a bit and we can see the early chapters of the life of this book, what has happened to us and all the rest of it. But God has not allowed us to see the final chapters. I've told this to some of our folk here before, so please forgive me. But my mother was an avid reader of books. And poor little me, on every Thursday evening, when I got home from school, I had to run from Dairn Road, where I lived, down to St. Benedict's to a bookshop. It was a, a, com, a, a combination of a library and a book sale shop. And I used to go there and get, I think, three or four books for my mother every week. Now, the lady in the shop, she knew my mother well, and she knew the type of books she liked, and so forth. They were novels, romantic novels, some type of things, you know. And I was, she handed them in, I was to bring them back and handed them to my mother. 
There's nothing remarkable in that. But not many people read a book like my mother did because she used to start at the last chapter. Fancy starting a book at the last chapter. And you, do you know why she did that? Because if she didn't like the finish of the book, she wouldn't read it. Simple as that. Though God in his love and his wisdom, he does not allow us to see the last chapter. We only know the present chapter, which we're moving and what has happened in the past. Our lives are like, they're like a book all the way through. And he is the author and he is the finisher. The great thing about that is that God has prepared every day, every hour, every moment of our lives. And he has prepared our tomorrows. You know, we will have problems tomorrow or the day after or the day after. As a Christian, we are not immune from problems. We well know that already, I'm quite sure. We will always have problems. But the great thing is that God has those problems in hand. And the Bible from Genesis to Revelation tells us how he will be with us. He will comfort us. He will support us. And he will be there in all the problems that we face in life. Because he's writing the book. He knows what's coming. He knows what's happened. He knows our strength. He knows our weakness. He knows every little thing about us. And because of that, we can have confidence in God for every day that lies ahead. Didn't we have a great sermon last week? In fact, bless what Blaine brought us last week. Brought us to the, the last days in his sermon. And we not only had a great message, but we had a great rally at the end when he, he led us in the Handel's Messiah. <laughs> and didn't he do it well? He, re he really did. But I went off this morning to have a little song. Uh, I've I thought about this carefully before I asked for it to be done. Because what I'd like us to do is wave off here this morning with confidence in God. I'd like us to go out this morning and just remember that the Lord has every one of our tomorrows prepared. Whatever happens, he's going to be with us, to be assured. Now, sometimes when you sing a little melody, it gets in your head, doesn't it? And you can't get rid of it, little song. I'm hoping that this little song will do that for you, so that when you sing this little melody, some of you will know it, probably not all of you, because it's a little bit of an old song. But if you get that little melody in your head, you might get the words as well. It's all about our tomorrows. And I'm going to ask if we can sing it in a moment too. We can sing it through, and if you want to, you can sing it again. If you, you know, so you really got it embedded in your mind. But it's about God's preparation for us, God's providence for us, about all our tomorrows. I hope that that art will bless you and help you and encourage you in the days that lie ahead. <laughs> 